Welcome to What Christians Should Know, How You Can Apply Biblical Principles to Everyday Life. Hello everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Elijah Sadafel, and welcome to What Christians Should Know, the podcast. Today, our focus is going to be on Psalm chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. Now, for those of you who are aware of my other podcast called Preaching Christ, which is available on iTunes, you know that over the past several weeks, I've been doing a sermon series on Psalm number 2. I've spent three separate Sundays preaching on verses 1 through 9, but time has prevented me from preaching on Psalm chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. In these verses, the Holy Spirit is giving everyone advice, and I'm going to exposit the verses and extract actionable information of how this applies to everyday life in the 21st century. So Psalm number 2, verses 10 to 12 says in the NASB, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now let's take a step back. In Psalm number 2, we have four separate stanzas or four separate acts that naturally divide the psalm into four different pieces. In Act 1, the narrator describes cosmic rebellion on earth, where nations, rulers, kings, and peoples are revolting against God. In the second stanza, or the second act, God the Father speaks, where he says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. In the third act, the Son speaks, Jesus speaks, and he says, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. Now in the fourth stanza of Psalm number two, the Spirit gives us advice. The Spirit commands us. And the question that we're going to answer today is, when the Holy Spirit is giving us advice, what does he have to say? And what is actionable and palpable for us here and now in the 21st century? So, in Psalm number 2, verses 10 to 12, the Holy Spirit gives us five commands. He says, number one, show discernment. Number two, take warning. Number three, worship the Lord. Number four, rejoice with trembling. And number five, do homage to the Son. So the first command is to show discernment. The King James translates this as, be wise. So the call here is to take the wise path that leads to life and not death. And in the spirit instructing us to be wise, what becomes clear very quickly is that wise people are humble enough. They have enough humility to realize that in the grand scheme of things, that they know nothing. That when they compare what they know versus what is to be known, they know but a speck upon a speck upon a speck upon a speck of the totality of knowledge that exists. As a result, from that posture of humility, the wise person knows they are always open and they are always receptive to receiving instruction because in the grand scheme of things, they don't have a complete hold on all that is to be known. So, 
when the spirit tells us to show discernment or to be wise, the spirit is telling us that it is always wise to be instructed, especially when that instruction leads to salvation of the soul. Now, why the spirit instructs us is because the Holy Spirit has a vested interest in life. Psalm number two begins describing cosmic rebellion on earth, and Psalm number two ends with the Holy Spirit commanding us, with the Holy Spirit guiding us. And the reason why the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us is because the Spirit wants us to live, is because the Spirit benefits nothing when we perish. The Spirit is telling us, be wise. Because the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is only good news if it gets there in time. If that news is delayed, or if that news arrives after judgment, it's going to be news which is null and void. So the Spirit is telling us, show discernment, because the good news of the Bible is timely. Now, there are many people who are not being wise, who are not showing discernment. And for them, the wrath of God will cut them off when they think they are in the middle of their race. So when the despisers of God flatter themselves in, in their prosperity, and when they are saying, peace, peace, they will be cut off by sudden destruction. For as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, when they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. So the Spirit commands us in Psalm number 2, verses 10 to 12, and that first command is to show discernment. The second command is take warning, O judges of the earth. The word of warning is to be wise and receive instruction. So the nations, the peoples, the rulers that are engaged in cosmic rebellion, they are given an opportunity to change their ways and submit. Now the Holy Spirit tells us, take warning, O judges of the earth. And warnings exist because number one, they are an alert of danger. And because number two, there is a concern for life. Warnings exist because there is an alert of danger and because there is a concern for life. In my medical office, for example, we have these red blatant containers which are called sharps containers. And there are these hard plastic containers that have a biohazard sticker on it. So in our medical office, if we were to do a procedure like to sew up someone's cut or to cut open an abscess where pus drains or to draw someone's blood. We take the scalpels, we take the sutures, we take the needles, and we put them in this sharps bin or this biohazard container that has all these warnings on it, that have all these stickers that say biohazard. And the reason why that bin has a blatant red color, and the reason why that bin advertises itself to alert of possible danger is twofold. 
Number one, because the biohazard bin tells us there's a danger. So no one in their right mind is going to go mucking around in the biohazard sharp spin. And number two, the manufacturers of this biohazard bin are concerned for life. They don't want medical assistance. They don't want nurses. They don't want doctors playing games with the biohazard container because they want you to be well. They want you to have life. They want you to be healthy and not to catch a life-threatening bacteria or a virus. So warnings exist to alert of danger and because there is a concern for life. So when the Holy Spirit tells us to take warning, O judges of the earth, it's because God is number one, alerting us of danger. So we will be mindful, we will take stock of who we are and what we are doing in life so that we have room and space to repent because the Holy Spirit has a vested interest and a concern for life. The third and fourth command are to worship the Lord with reverence and to rejoice with trembling. Now, there must always be a holy fear mixed in with the Christian's joy because fear without joy is torment and joy without holy fear would be presumption. Serving insecurity and rejoicing without fear would be hypocritical as the person is secure in themselves and appear to do what is right without judgment at all times. God is both perfectly graceful and perfectly just at the same time. So when we as Christians have a saving relationship with God, we worship God with reverence. We adore him because he's our adoptive father. Because of his grace, he does give us that which we do not deserve. And his love and steadfast loyalty towards us abounds for eternity. But at the same time, we also know that our adoptive father, he stands for something. He stands for justice. He stands for righteousness. He stands for his own holiness. And he stands for truth. So with that reverence, with our worship of God, we also have a logically rational and mentally sound fear of God knowing what he stands for. If we were to rejoice in the Lord and celebrate our liberty, not realizing that we as adopted children of God delight in following his commandments, that would be following God under a presumption, under a assumption that we're going to be okay regardless of what we do. On the flip side of things, if we focus our attention solely and exclusively on God's commandment, on his judgment, without realizing that he's also merciful and graceful, what we have then is condemnation, despair, and hopelessness. So we rejoice in the light in the Lord, knowing that he is graceful, knowing that he is just. But we also have a reasonable and rational fear knowing that God's law is perfect and that his standard of righteousness is unattainable, which is why we profess faith in Jesus Christ, who is the only one who has ever lived a life of perfect obedience to God's law. 
the fear of the Lord then in this situation is not a sign of emotional instability, but a mark of wisdom. When people are wise, when people know exactly who God is, the perfectly rational and logical response is to have a fear of God. If you were to walk into the forest and to see a bear, or if you were to walk into the jungle and see a lion, you should be afraid of these animals because they are wild beasts that can take you out in a second. If you weren't afraid, or you foolishly stood in front of these animals in your bravado and said, I'm not afraid of you, then you're a fool because you're not thinking and you're not using your senses. So a Christian who earnestly and sincerely knows that their loving Father in Heaven is their loving Father, but at the same time has a healthy dose of fear, knowing that God is holy, perfect, and just, that is a perfectly reasonable, that is a perfectly wise, that is a perfectly intelligent response, and is a sign of wisdom. The fifth command is to do homage to the Son. And the King James translates this as, kiss the sun. Now this language is interesting because we have to ask ourselves, why would God breathe out and inspire David to write in Psalm number two, the language of kiss the sun? Well, there are four reasons. The first is that a kiss is a sign of reconciliation. In Genesis 33, for example, we have Jacob and Esau who are brothers where last time they saw one another, there was murder in the air. And in Genesis 33, which is the first time they had seen each other in a very long time, they met one another, they embraced one another, and they gave one another a kiss on the neck because a kiss is a sign of reconciliation. And what's so ironic is that for someone who is waging war against God, for someone who is engaged in cosmic rebellion against God Almighty, a kiss is often harder than waging war because to kiss the sun means putting down your weapons, taking off your helmet of pride, taking off your breastplate of self-righteousness, and actually putting down your weapons of war and kissing the sun. It's an act which demands that soldiers who are warring against God do something which they have never done before. And when the Spirit commands us to kiss the sun, our outward act has to match our inward heart condition. The New Testament tells us, for example, that Judas betrayed Jesus Christ with a kiss. That was a deceitful kiss. That was a kiss which was meant to harm and to destroy Jesus. So we have to be sure in our heart of hearts that when we kiss the Son, our internal heart condition matches our outward actions. A kiss is also a sign of allegiance. History tells us, for example, that in the courts of Assyrian kings, when people came in to meet the king or to greet the king, they would kiss his hand or kiss his ring, which was a public declaration that this individual showed allegiance, showed submission to the king. So when the spirit directs us to kiss the son, it's a sign of allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, we have to be very, very insightful 
because Christ serves in three different offices. There's Christ the priest, there's Christ the king, and there's Christ the prophet. Many people in modernity love kissing Christ the priest, the person who intercedes, the person who says prayers for you, the person who is a shepherd who is loving and kind and warm. But many people do not kiss Christ the prophet who proclaims God's word, who in God's word says, if you love me, then you will obey my commandments. Many people don't like kissing Christ the king, which means you not only bend the knee and bow down to Christ in church, which means you not only bend the knee and bow down to Christ on Sunday, but in every aspect of your life, whether it's your finances, whether it's your entertainment, whether it's your job, whether it's your family, whether it's the life that you lead when no one is looking, when you kiss the Son, that means you are kissing Christ the King, Christ the Prophet, and Christ the Priest. Because Jesus occupies all three offices, when you kiss the Son, then you are pledging allegiance to all three because they are one in the same and they are inseparable. A kiss is also a sign of worship because it was a custom in the ancient world to kiss the idol of the God you worshiped. So when the Spirit informs us to kiss the Son, that means we are worshiping Jesus Christ. In 1 Kings 19 verse 18, God actually says that there are many people in Israel who have not kissed the idol of Baal, meaning they have not worshipped Baal. So in the NASB, 1 Kings 19.18 says, and this is now God speaking, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Because a kiss is a sign of worship. And when we kiss Jesus Christ, we are worshiping and showing our adoration for him. A kiss is also a sign of affectionate gratitude. It is an outward reflection of an inward feeling of genuine thankfulness. In the New Testament, Mary Magdalene, for example, washed Jesus' feet with her tears and she did what? She kissed them. Because a kiss is a sign of affectionate gratitude that comes from an inward heart condition that sincerely appreciates what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to our text. The fifth command that the Spirit gives us in Psalm chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, is to do homage to the Son. Now the four previous commands, the Spirit does not give us a reason why we should do them. The Spirit simply commands us. But for this fifth command, do homage to the Son, the Spirit gives us a reason. So the text says, do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. This is the reason, or gives us an explanation why we should do homage to the Son. And the reason is that, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath 
may soon be kindled. Here is a brutal fact. The wrath of God, step by step, day by day, is slowly building up. And the only thing that is holding it back is a dam of grace. It is a dam of mercy. And when that dam breaks, when the time has come for the wrath of God to be unleashed on the world, it will make hurricanes, it will make earthquakes, it will make 9-11, it will make the worst catastrophe you can imagine in your mind look like a Sunday school picnic. It will be carnage unimaginable. And Psalm number two speaks of delayed judgment. It speaks of the Spirit giving us advice, giving us warnings to prepare us that we take stock of our own lives and take our own salvation seriously, cognizant and aware of what is coming. So you're not going to be brash. You're not going to be boastful. But when someone in your Christian walk at some point in time asks you, where is your God? In your heart of hearts, what you're going to think to yourself is, do you really want God to show up? Because when he does, when God's kingdom descends upon the earthly realm and invades the natural space that we call earth, there will be carnage unimaginable. And the only refuge is going to be in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, destruction is coming. Judgment is coming. Carnage is coming. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. That a kiss, that doing homage to the Son, that pledging allegiance, submitting oneself to, and worshiping Christ the King removes the wrath, removes the anger of God. Because to make peace with God the Father simply requires that you kiss the Son. And when you kiss the Son, when you kiss Christ, when you kiss His hands, and when you kiss His feet, what will you see? You will see the wrists that were pierced for your sin. You will see the feet that were pierced for my sin. You will see the suffering servant who emptied himself and walked among us as God in the flesh for the sake of humanity. So you're not kissing a king. You're not kissing the son who is a unreasonable, tyrannical dictator. You are kissing the hands and feet of the Son who took the first step to have relationship with you and emptied himself for the sake of his subjects and for the sake of his sheep. And what still to me to this day just completely blows my mind and transcends my understanding is that you have an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing God who holds the world in his hand. And the thing that holds back his wrath, the thing that sustains carnage unimaginable from happening on our world is a simple human kiss to Christ the King, is a simple doing homage to the Son, 
where men and women all around the world bow down before the throne of Christ the King and worship and adore him as their Lord and Savior. The final verse of Psalm number two is a benediction that says, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. How blessed are all who take refuge in Christ. So Psalm number two does not end in wrath and fire. It ends with a sweet, soft, reviving shower after the storm that says, blessed are all who take refuge in Jesus Christ. Because above anything else, Psalm number two tells us that God is both our biggest threat and our biggest hope at the same time. There is never ever going to be refuge from Christ the King. There is only refuge in Christ the King. And taking refuge in Christ the King means obedience, means submission, means reliance, and it also means expectation. So now at the end of Psalm number two, this Psalm ends where Psalm number one began by describing the blessed person. And the contrast is that those who seek God seek his dominion as a place of refuge, as a place of comfort, as a place of assurance, as a place of security, not as a place of slavery because we delight in, we rejoice, and we celebrate everything that God has done for us. And because of what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, we worship, we celebrate, and we adore God because he is our rock, he is our mighty fortress, he is our ark, he is our savior, and he is our Lord. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast, but I wanted to take a moment to speak to all of my listeners because I need your help. If you've enjoyed this or any other What Christians Should Know podcast, please leave a rating and a comment for it on iTunes. And one more favor, if you've liked What Christians Should Know, tell a friend, tell a family member, tell a church member so more people can feel confident about what they believe and why they believe it. Thank you for listening. For more valuable content, including written transcripts, a bookstore, and online Bible study, please visit wcsk.org.